from Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. Well, as of this past weekend, the NFL season is officially underway, and because of this new world we live in, that means there's going to be a lot of sports gambling happening in nearly every state. A Supreme Court ruling back in 2018 opened the door for any and every state to legalize sports gambling, and a whole lot of them have. But they've also adopted their own unique ways of taxing this new industry. Some go after the hold, or the revenue generated from losing bets. Others impose taxes on a sportsbook's handle, or the total amount that gamblers put down. One common provision in a lot, but not all of these states, is that free promotional bets can be deducted. So this, of course, raises the question, which gambling tax scheme is the best? Which states have the most thriving gaming industries while generating the most tax revenue? And what should they spend that revenue on? We're going to pose all of those questions to today's guest, Chris Altruda. He's an analyst with Better Collective, a market research outfit that looks at the gaming industry. Chris spoke with Bloomberg tax reporter Angelica Serrano-Roman about all the different tax models states have adopted and the reasons why they've gone in different directions. But first, he gets into why sports gambling is an attractive way for states to raise tax revenue. Well, one of the things about sports wagering revenue is that it's a low-maintenance form of generating tax revenue. It's essentially a wind-up for state government. You legalize it, you regulate it, you let the industry police itself to a large extent, and then you get the tax revenue that comes out of it. In the beginning, as a new form of tax revenue, it was one of those things where they were promised more probably than originally thought. And I think what's interesting now is based on the evolution of the product, you're getting the tax revenue numbers closer in line what was with originally promised. We have seen some states not only meet their revenue projections but exceed them. But then we have also seen that other states fall short due to a number of factors. For example, a failure to launch online and in-person gambling at the same time. What are some of the lessons that these states can learn from other states that have had more success? The biggest thing that states should be taking into account is the importance of a simultaneous launch. Two states that, the two states that have done that, Michigan and Ohio, are among the top 10 nationally per month in handle. Part of that is obviously population size, but part of it is also just having all your ducks in a row that your regulatory bodies are in line, your operators are in line, you have a chance to work out the kinks. Everyone is on the starting line together, so everyone has a chance at market share, and then it becomes the best product as opposed to just being there. Right. I have some data provided by the American Gaming Association that shows sports betting revenue in the U.S. surged to $2.3 billion during the second quarter of this year. And that was a new quarterly record. As someone who delves into numbers, do these numbers come as a surprise to you? This quarter, no, because what's been happening over the past 12 months, and this goes back to July of last year, is that you're seeing this evolution of the product going towards parlays and single-game parlays and also regular par- traditional parlay wagering. That has become the most... It's not the most popular form of wagering, but it's become a prevalent form. It's easy. Operators get a much, a much more substantial re- rate of return on terms of hold on that than they do single-event wagering. In some cases, it's almost three or four times the hold. 
So as a result, they promote these. When you go on a, a sportsbook landing page, you will see that one of the main promotional offers will be putting together a same-game parlay. They will have a tailor-made same-game parlay ready for you if you want to do that based on a team you like, based on a player you like. Now, these parlays aren't always going to win. In fact, there was anecdotally, I remember someone did did one every day for a month, and I think only one of the 30 hit. So it's kind of caveat emptor, but at the same time, the holds that come out of parlays are so much higher than single event wagering is that's why you're seeing this increase in revenue and in turn this increase in state tax revenue that comes with it. The gambling industry overall saw a an increase in state and local tax revenue. The numbers from the American Game Association um, say it's $3.62 billion in the second quarter. But when considering the states that have emerged as front runners, I think about New York and Pennsylvania partially because they have some of the highest tax rates. What are the potential benefits and drawbacks for offsetting higher tax rates on sports betting operators? Well, New York went all in with, with the 51% rate and while operators chafed at it, they also swallowed their pride on it because they knew it was the largest market to legalize. And not being in there is more damaging than being in there and paying half your freight. What Pennsylvania does is Pennsylvania is a high tax, high promotional deduction model in which they do tax at 34%, 36% when you count everything. But at the same time, pretty much every promotional deduction you you have, you're allowed to use. What states have done going forward and what I call version 2.0 are doing either a sliding scale on the amount of promotional deductions you're allowed in terms of percentage, or in the case of Louisiana, which I still think is personally the best one, is that they limited the operators to $5 million per year in promotional credits. They can spend it however they want, but you can't go over that figure. So then you become judicious about attracting new customers, attracting existing customers, and and make your product better that way. So I think there's kind of a, a sliding scale of sorts. I think that 15% is the maximum business-friendly tax rate you can do without promotions, like Illinois has. Ohio recently doubled theirs from 10 to 20, and I know there were more than a few operators upset about that based on the fact it was 10%, which was a very industry-friendly figure considering that they weren't deducting promotions. But when you get to the 20% mark, you need to kind of give something back to do that. Some states have put limits on the deductions for free and promotional bets. What's your take on this? Is this a good idea or should operators be allowed to fully deduct this? I think there's truths to both sides of it. I think one of the things is that when you had a case like Virginia, which is a large market state, and allowing not only promotional deductions, but allowing them to carry over in perpetuity, that's a problem for state government because you're, you're now losing out on tax revenue month after month after month. If you, say, cut the losses that you're only allowed to maybe carry it over for 30 days or 60 days, then it becomes more reasonable. I thought Virginia reducing promotional credits for only operators who have been in the state less than 12 months went a long way to helping their tax revenue as you can now see new R operators now in a race to zero. As an example, Bet365 is in its, it launched in January, so they're still in this place where they can deduct promotional credits. Their negative adjusted gross revenue right now is $4 million. 
and they have four months to get there in terms of breaking it even before they start getting taxed without being able to deduct promotional credits. As we discussed, most of the states levy a tax on the operator's gross revenue, but Tennessee did something unique earlier this year. What did the state do, and do you see other states following the same path? So Tennessee went from taxing 20% of adjusted gross revenue to taxing 1.88% of the handle. Now, the handle in this case is the amount wagered in the state by, by the betting public. So at first, we looked at it, we were a little surprised by it, given that one, Tennessee was allowing for promotional play and also had the high tax rate, which in this case was working for them. It was 20%. It was a notable amount. There was one month, I believe, they came close to $8 million in tax revenue. What we determined is that the operators would have to have a hold of approximately 9.4% to break even versus the 20% tax rate. Anything under that, sportsbooks are paying more. Anything over that, sportsbooks are keeping more. And based on the way Tennessee has gone over the past five months, where it had a hold of 10% or higher, it's been, you can make the argument that it's it's going to lose money if that trend continues. Now, unfortunately, the Sports Wagering Council has no longer put revenue figures in their monthly reports, so we don't have a point of comparison after the first month. I don't know whether or not state, state legislators will take up anything for regulation purposes, but Based on the way they've trended historically and based on the way the industry is trending, there's a very real chance they will lose money doing this the final six months of the year. And it could wind up being a small seven-figure amount based on their history and also how the, how the industry is going. I also read that some states are considering following that path. There's no bill enacted yet, but some states are considering this. Do you think this could happen? In states with small tax tax rates, like Iowa, for example, which is 6.75%, you can make an argument that that could work there. During football season, they get up to $200 million. Maybe you tax 2% and you get, four, you get $4 million. They've only cleared $1 million in tax revenue, I, I believe, twice in their history, and they've been up since 2019. A lot of it depends on a state and its tax rate. If you know, states under ten percent, like Indiana, is nine and a half percent. They, there's no harm in them considering it, especially in the case of Indiana, because when it gets popular during the winter, they draw four hundred million, four hundred fifty million, and two percent of that is nine million, which is a substantially higher amount than what they get now, based on nine and a half percent. Some of this tax money has gone towards social programs and education. Some critics have also raised concerns about the potential for sports betting to contribute to the growth of gambling addiction. And it is for this reason that a few states are dedicating a fraction of their tax earnings to address this issue. Now, there is a phrase we use in Latin America, and it's basically undressing a saint to dress another. And it relates to the fact of, you know, a problem. We're going to fix that problem with a new pro- a new problem. If you can, can you share how effective are these measures and what challenges do states face with gambling addiction? I think the, the effectiveness varies from state to state based on the strength of the regulatory agency. I live in Chicago and the Illinois Gaming Board 
does pay more than lip service to it. At the same time, the Illinois Gaming Board is absolutely swamped with things beyond sports wagering. They're opening a casino in downtown Chicago. There's two other casinos that have opened in the past year. It's a priority, but it's also very hard to make it a notable priority just based on the sheer amount of action they have in addition to being the second largest sports wagering market in the country. I thought that smart legislation would make it mandatory to earmark at least 1%, if not more, maybe closer to 3% towards responsible gaming. I know Washington, D.C. has gone back and forth with it actually defunding it, which I believe is a problem because there is a very real sports betting problem as part of responsible gaming. People will have issues. People will need treatment. And you need that funding in order to keep operators within the industry honest, but also to keep the state honest as a, as a legitimate source. Are there any international models or best practices in sports betting taxation that, you could, that could offer valuable insights to states navigating this space? In terms of international, I'm not really sure. I know this country takes most of its cues from England because that's a more mature market. I still go back to, to the number. I think if you are not going to allow promotional deductions, your tax rate ceiling should be 15%. If you are, you can, you can bump it to 20%. I like the idea of the fixed amount of promotional spend per year because everyone knows where you're coming from. You, you, as an operator, I know I have $5 million to spend. As a, as, a, as a state body, I know you can only spend $5 million. I, I, I like the fixed amount. I, like, I also like the sliding scale that Connecticut does, in which it started out at 25%, is now 20%, and each year it will, it will reduce by 5% until it's zeroed out. I'm not completely sold on Ohio not deducting promotional credits for four years and then allowing it to do so because Ohio has had a very high hold through the first seven months of the year since launch. And while they kind of braced themselves already by doubling the tax rate, when those promotional credits are going to be available during football season, when there's going to be a lot of action in Ohio, I don't know whether or not that's going to fully compensate for that. So that would be interesting to watch, but it's also three or four years down the road for them. And finally, Chris, looking ahead, how might the landscape of sports betting taxes shift in the coming years? I think the, the biggest thing will be if or when Texas and California come online. Texas is what we jokingly call one of the holy grail states. It was Florida, New York, Texas, and California. Florida with the Seminole tribe, that's still up and down. That's still being adjudicated through the court system. We, we're not exactly sure how it's going to pan out, but the belief is that Seminole tribe will eventually launch. Texas, to me, is the more interesting one because that state is you know, low regulation, low taxes. During the 2021 session, the sports bill that came up was had a 10% tax rate with no promotional deductions. That's an operator-friendly rate, and in a big market like that, which would exceed New York's handle and get into that $2 billion monthly handle. And you know, base it, if you base it on 8% hold, for argument's sake, it's $160 million. You get 10% of that, you get $16 million a month, and you're looking at almost $200 million a year in, in sports betting taxes. So Texas, to me, is the, is the one that 
could change the landscape. California, I think, is still further out based on the way the tribes absolutely battered operators in, in the voting question. So I think there has to be a better approach by the operators to the tribes to make that work. And I don't know if they're ready to do it. And I also don't know if the tribes want to do it yet based on kind of some of the acrimony that was developed last year. That was Chris Altruda, an analyst with Better Collective, speaking with Angelica Serrano-Ramon. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Naomi Jagoda is our editor. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules and you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.